outside of ourselves for beauty or culture. We have it. And that's when I felt like I was on a mission with the art. It wasn't just art for art's sake, which I can't stand that concept. Art to just do a piece of art. I want to make a statement. I want to make a strong statement because you will have the opportunity to tap some other being, giving them a perspective that perhaps they wouldn't have seen before, if they had not had the experience of seeing you. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam on our final show for this tumultuous year, 2016. Of course, speaking of history, we've been marking all this month the 50th anniversary of the call for black power in this country by SNCC Chairman Stokely Carmichael and activist Willie Ricks in 1966, when similar liberation movements in Africa, Asia, and the Americas were rising up against colonialism and all forms of capitalist, European, and American hegemony. Today's program includes the fifth and final part of that series, Black Power, 50 Years in D.C., 1966 to 2016. The Black Arts Movement is our focus today and features my recent interview with fiber artist and cultural activist Janua Moja, who has exhibited her wearable art throughout the African diaspora. Then in the second half, a look back at 2016 with Professor Gerald Horn. So you know the drill. We have a lot packed into this less than an hour. And before we go to Black Power 50 Years in D.C., here are our headlines. A National Poor People's Campaign Watch Night service will be held tomorrow, Saturday, December 31st, New Year's Eve at 10 p.m. here in D.C. at Metropolitan AME Church, 1518 M Street Northwest, the site where funerals of both Rosa Parks and Frederick Douglass were held. Human rights activist the Reverend William Barber is presiding over the service that will be streamed online and replicated at other houses of worship around the country. The theme of the watch night service is standing down is not an option and will cap a day of action starting at 10 a.m. with a press conference followed by a teaching at the National City Christian Church at 5 Thomas Circle Northwest. The service calls on people of conscience to make a moral decision to enlist in the fight against systemic racism, poverty, child poverty, extremism, denial of health care, voter suppression, environmental injustice, xenophobia, unchecked militarism, homophobia, transphobia, and our current moment in history. Reverend Barbara told WPFW that a true moral movement can trump religious and political hypocrisy. The heresy of so-called white evangelicalism is that it says the only real moral issues are homosexuality, prayer in school, and abortion. That was by design because they never wanted the kind of moral critique that Dr. King raised as a preacher and many other preachers 
uh, and even Rabbi Heschel, the Jewish scholar, they never wanted that kind of moral critique to be strong again because they know that every major transition in this country from at the ending of slavery and the abolition movement all the way down to the civil rights movement happened because it had a deep moral critique. Now, in the scriptures I read, there's over 2,000 scriptures about poverty and injustice and how you treat women and the children. Think about that. Only three about homosexuality. Most of them are misinterpreted because they don't trump the language. You still got to love your neighbors yourself. More information about daytime actions at National City and the nighttime watch night service at Metropolitan AME is at repairsofthebreach.org. Advocates for Palestinian rights both praised and criticized this week's remarks about Israeli settlements by outgoing Secretary of State John Kerry. Jewish Voice for Peace issued a statement that said in part that John Kerry named some truths that we haven't heard from U.S. officials for quite some time and probably won't hear again anytime soon that Israel's practice of seizing Palestinian land while denying Palestinian people equal rights from the Nakba to the present day cannot continue, that indefinite occupation and democracy are incompatible, that criticism of Israel's racist policies is not inherently anti-Semitic, and that continuing to deny Palestinians' rights, not just in the occupied territories but also inside the Green Line, is at odds with democratic ideals. That's the good news, their statement said. But Kerry's plea to preserve a two-state solution sounded more like its eulogy. His plan offered no vision for how Palestinian human rights will be established and defended, so it's really no plan at all. The reality, the statement continues, is that Israel has no incentive to comply with the moderate principles Kerry outlined, even if Kerry was going to be in power to try to implement them. Just a few months ago, the U.S. promised Israel billions more dollars in military aid, and that aid was met with rampant settlement construction. And that was under President Obama. Working hand-in-hand with his racist allies in the incoming Trump administration, Netanyahu is drawing up plans for an extreme future of xenophobia, violence, and annexation. John Kerry's speech was far from perfect, the statement said. It explained why only justice can lead to peace, but still advanced a failed plan that won't come close to establishing Palestinian human rights. And the speech came only when Kerry has one foot out of the door on the eve of a new presidential administration that sees justice as a punchline rather than a goal. This week, President Obama also announced new sanctions against Russia in response to alleged hacking of the Democratic National Committee. In response, many cyber security specialists reiterated their skepticism that any such hacking occurred, saying that a leak to WikiLeaks occurred, not a hack. Tech pioneer and political activist John McAfee told talk show host Larry King that regardless of the source of the information about DNC wrongdoing, he welcomed learning the facts. I believe that we should know, as American citizens, the truth of what is happening within our government. You know, our government wants to say, well, we have secrets that we must protect. There are no secrets anymore. If the U.S. government believes that the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians do not already have all of our secrets because of their hacking technologies, then our government is deluding itself. So WikiLeaks... You know, it's, it's, it's a tricky question, but I would rather know. I would rather know that my government is doing something illegal, like having the NSA spy on me and you and others, 
than not to know. Surely this, this is the only sane way to look at this. The White House also announced the expulsion of Russian diplomats, and the Kremlin said that sanctions are groundless and unlawful and would be met with retaliation. Cuba, Africa, and the world, a tribute to Fidel Castro, will be held in Washington, D.C., Saturday, January 7, 2017, beginning at 3.30 p.m. at the Festival Center, 1640 Columbia Road in Northwest D.C. The tribute will include performances by Rod Starr as one half of the hip-hop duo Rebel Diaz and vocalist Lucy Murphy, as well as remarks from those in the diplomatic, legal, academic, and activist communities. Tickets are available at Eventbrite. Admission is free, but a donation is requested. No one will be turned away. In culture and media, one story this week is that in this election year, the home improvement channel HGTV beat CNN and MSNBC in viewers. HGTV was the third most watched cable channel behind Fox so-called news and the ESPN sports channel. HGTV viewers told reporters that they watched the channel, which is very vanilla, to escape what is on the news. Several progressive activists and media organizations are distributing bumper stickers urging Americans to resist injustice, especially that of the incoming Trump administration. At his recent holiday party, the Institute for Policy Studies made available red, white, and black bumper stickers that read, Resist Greed, Lies, and Power. And the online news organization Common Dreams .org is distributing a resist bumper sticker highlighting their hashtag, Not Normal. Those celebrating Kwanzaa are celebrating Nia today in D.C. The citywide celebration starts 6 p.m. at the Thurgood Marshall Center, 1816 12th Street, Northwest. We will have more culture and media in the second half of Gerald Horn and in the next hour when we'll be joining with Ian on Community Watch and Comment for your stories of the year. But for now, those are some of the headlines and happenings. When we come back, the final part of our series, Black Power, 50 Years in D.C., 1966 to 2016. In this series, we have explored black economic power, including labor, housing, gentrification, political activism, and international and ideological struggles. Today is a discussion about black power and the black arts movement with fiber artist and cultural activist Janua Moja, who has exhibited her wearable art throughout the African diaspora. Stay with us. Oh, what's happening, CC? They still call it the White House, but that's a temporary condition, too. Can you dig it, CC? To each is reach, and if I don't cop, it ain't mine to hang. But I'll be reaching for you, because I love you, CC. Right on. There's a lot of chocolate cities uh, around. We've got Newark, we've got Gary. Somebody told me we got L.A. <laughs> and we're working on Atlanta. But you're the capital. A blood to blood, a uh, players to ladies. The last percentage count was 80. You don't need the bullet when you got the valley. Are you up for the downstroke? CC. City. Are you with me out there? And when they come to march on you, tell them to make sure they got their James Brown pants. And don't be surprised if Ali is in the White House. And Reverend Ike, Secretary of the Treasury. Richard Pryor, Minister of Education. Stevie Wonder, Secretary of Fine Arts. And Miss Aretha Franklin, 
the first lady. Are you out there, CC? A chocolate city is no dream. It's my piece of the rock. And I dig you, CC. God bless Chocolate City and its vanilla suburbs. Can y'all get to that? I wanted to talk to you about uh, culture and being an artist during this time mm -hmm. and how you think the black power movement influenced your work as an artist and as a creative entrepreneur. I'm taking this back to the mid-60s, very much influenced by uh, the times because times had changed. With the black power movement came the black arts movement. So literature, art, theater, all phases of art was very much touched by that time, such as Baraka, Haki Mahabudi, Sun Ra, Doug and Jean Kong, Coltrane Farrow, Barbara Ann Teer and the National Black Theater Company, of course, Laini Mataka. It was a high energy time for culture. And being a young artist, I wanted to put my hat in the ring and make some kind of contribution to the times and the cause. It was an awakening for many of us coming out of, of course, the mid-60s. We just getting going there with our rights to vote and having great people take office. Uh, Adam Clayton Powell was on the scene mm -hmm. and John Conyers. Folks were making contributions left and right. So when you talk about like people just having the right to vote, like people don't really think about it that way because, I mean, you were growing up in Baltimore, right? Yes. So what was that transition like when you, just as a person, when you, did you go from a feeling of feeling less empowered to being a part of a movement that made you feel empowered? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There was no energy before that that you could tap into, that you could feel Times have changed and things were getting better and we are moving forward. It was a stagnation. It was from being Negro to being black and accepting your blackness and, and wanting to, again, make a contribution to the culture. It was the first time I was like African culture, African inspired. Those words were used. And that certainly pulled me in. It was college. Uh, my, I was at community college at that time. Which one? Community College of Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And I just saw a new day, a new day for us. And so here we are 50 years <laughs> away from that, 45 years away from that, and I'm seeing another new beginning uh, mm. around now, you know. And I see the, I'm glad I can see the linkages from then to now. So when you were at the community college, for example, were there maybe professors or the opportunity for students to bring in speakers? A lot of, for a lot of people, the college and that educational environment is what allowed them to expand. And Yeah, and then we had um, wonderful people in our community that recognized. So, yeah, college level, yeah, there was a, a brother who taught um, history. Uh, Professor Hosley was his name, and I knew him from high school, taught history in high school. But then when I went to college, he had moved on, and he was teaching up at the university. 
And so we had Professor Hosley, uh, Eugenia Collier, which taught English, and she's also a wonderful author of several um, books. And, of course, we had the Black Bookstore in Baltimore, which was um, the first black bookstore, Paul Coates, who's the father of Ta-Nehisi Coates. It was the first black bookstore in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. So, Because other than that, we were coming over here to D.C. to drum and spear right. around that time. And so with this wonderful energy at that time and coming into knowing about our great black historians, uh, John Henry Clark, Dr. Ben, I began to read our history and just latched on to it. It was definitely a part of making me see that we had a long history, a mm-hmm. great culture, and a legacy. Well, how did that impact your art and being an artist? That had everything to do with it. That's what sparked it uh, in terms of creativity. I was always creative. Uh, I thought I was, <laughs> at least. And I wanted to delve further into that. Remember, back in the 60s, there were no, or very few, and especially for Baltimore around that time, there were no stores we could go to to get Afrocentric attire. And so I was sewing anyway, and I began to turn my head towards cultural garments around that time. So we, in the late, I'm going back to the 60s again um, for that but very much inspired by our culture and wanted to make a contribution. I remember wrapping my heads for the first time, uh, gale, with African cloth, and people asking me where did I come from, uh, what organization I belonged to, what was my religion, because that wasn't something that was the norm in Baltimore. So when you say the 60s, what do you mean going back to the 60s? You mean like what time? Again, Mid sixties. Yeah, because this is like sixty six. We're talking about like when Stokely first made the call for Black Power. Right. And I guess all these things are happening around the same time in terms of the Black Arts Movement. And actually, I came out as a designer, uh, artist of Afrocentric clothing, about sixty nine. Mm-hmm. But around sixty seven, sixty six. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think we were all coming around that time. So. So when did you start making things for other people and kind of becoming a creative entrepreneur? Uh, well, once that? I started to get requests from brothers about making dashikis. Mm-hmm. And then I thought like, wow, because the person that I was relating to at the time asked to make dashikis for him. And I continued um, and people responded to the work, and I got requests for wedding dresses that people um, begin to have mm-hmm. African weddings. So, again, there weren't many of us around that sold African-centered clothing. Right. So because of that request, I just delved more into the concept of becoming a designer or claiming myself as a designer mm-hmm. and doing these uh, creations of Afrocentric clothing. Did you have trouble finding the fabric and definitely the goods to make your... Not in Baltimore. <laughs> that was far and wide in between. You had to wait till an African vendor came through or somebody <laughs> who knew somebody 
or travel to New York City, which was uh, uh, always a place you could find those mm-hmm. things. So I would save my money up and get on the Greyhound bus every now and then and wow. go up to New York and buy the supplies. And have like what, like later, uh, loaded down with like bags? <laughs> as much as I could, it was, as far as the money would take me at the time. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, we were being creative uh I mean, Sears Roebuck used to sell fabric, and I'd go up there and buy some plain red fabric or whatever and make a dashiki Uh and try to stretch the African print. So that's where you learn to be creative with modifying, (laughs) exactly, modifying um, what you have to work with. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the creative journey, I guess, coming to D.C. and the ways you think that D.C. may have been distinct compared to other places where there were black power movements. Right. Well, we were very fortunate in Baltimore. We had Soul School. We had Timbuktu Educational Center, which I taught sewing there. It was the first time I took my know-how to do classes so I taught sewing at Timbuktu. I remember I took my grandmother's old sewing machine. She had one of those old-fashioned singers yeah. that she wasn't using anymore. And I had two sewing machines, rickety sewing machines, but they sewed nevertheless and embarked on the concept of teaching others mm-hmm. how to do that and how to do African-inspired clothing. Where was the Timbuktu school? It was on Edmondson Avenue. West Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And it was an old movie theater that um, was gutted out. So it was a, a nice, spacious place. And it was a meeting. And right next to that, I think a couple of doors, was the Black Topographical Center. Did you ever hear that? No. The Black Topographical Center. Some brothers came to town. They weren't from Baltimore, as far as I knew. But they came and they put maps up around a room. And they could tell you like where black people were dispersed and what was going on in the country regarding black people. So very informative space at that time. And then myself and two partners moved down the idea back to the entrepreneur space. We went downtown and rented the second floor little storefront and called it Dinner Lua African Shop. And uh, was very well received by the community. That's when the greater community began to know of us because we had, everybody was doing things in their own particular community. But right. when you go downtown, it's yeah. like the crossroads. You get some of, you know, in front of the bus stop. Right. And you see some people that you probably wouldn't have run into right. other right. than that. So. That was working for a couple of years, and that was about 70 in the, mm, and I started Institute at 74. Okay. So, yeah, right before that. Okay. And compare that experience to when you came to D.C. and, I guess, being established here as an artist here and as an entrepreneur here. D.C. is, is a very special space. I mean, here you are in I would say for this side of the country, other than New York, it's D.C. in terms of the energy. I mean, Marion Barry was in town. Again, you're talking about black power, black politicians, Kwaisi uh, Mufume. That's the first time you heard of a brother with an African name <laughs> in, in one of those positions. And so um, 
I graduated from Merle Institute, and I think I graduated in May, and I, I married my husband, Yuziki, in 79 of August that year. Mm -hmm. So it was a very uh, uh, wonderful time again to uh, be here, and Howard University was bubbling again. Uh, the great thinkers and artists of that time was there. Coming out of Festac 77, too. That was my first time out of the country and seeing uh, on the international flavor of mm -hmm. uh, Africans what we were doing worldwide as yeah. a part of that. What is one of the things that you remember from Festac being really special to you? Well, I mean, again, um, the music, the cultures from all across Africa. I mean, it was a month-long festival. I should basically get you also to say where it was. It was in Lagos, Nigeria. It was okay. in Heldon, Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And it was the first. There was one festival before that. I think that festival took place in the, the late 60s in Senegal. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know much about that. But this was 77. And... Nigeria had the oil money that they were uh, at that time working for them. So they were able to invite all these African countries and the diaspora. Mm. So you had historians, wow. musicians, artists of all kinds coming together and staying in Festag Village was like our world. I mean, mm -hmm. you could just walk around the village and you were walking around the African world. Well, you know, I'm just thinking that this is also a kind of a post-colonial movement because mm -hmm. you have all these countries like Nigeria, you know, countries in Africa throughout the diaspora that are in their first years really after liberation, Absolutely. after like throwing off, you know, colonial rule. Absolutely. Yeah. So. And um, again, to have the wherewithal to say, let's get together. Good to know you. Nice mm -hmm. to meet you. You know, mm -hmm. so you got to see what was going on from South Africa to the diaspora and mm -hmm. on. And, and also, I mean, at the same time, I'm thinking like throwing off all those old ideas about Africa. You know, so it wasn't Absolutely. just embracing African clothing and, and history, but it's also kind of getting rid of that. All those images from, I guess, you know, what, like the 50s, Tars 30s, and, yeah, yeah, right. 30s, 40s, you know, very negative images of Africa and just stereotypes about African people and culture and all and that. And that's very true. And, I mean, we were at this new way of being and living. We wanted to tap into Africa. So going to Nigeria, having that experience of being in Nigeria, which was, again, a lot of our first-time uh, experiences going to Africa. Now, I know, because I went with you on a trip to Brazil mm -hmm. in the late 90s, that you've gone to lots of different places in the diaspora since then. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, that, I made it my mission after mm -hmm. I had a taste of uh, Festac 77, which uh, seeing um, people of uh, uh, African uh, descent, um, like I said, Africans and people of African descent. So when we were in Brazil, I know, I think it might have been the last night, you had a fashion show there. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when we did the emancipation show at the DCAC a few years ago, you showed images of a fashion show you did in Cuba. Yes. So yes. how many? How many? Very blessed. Yeah. Well, I I did okay. I've done two fashion shows in Africa, Senegal in the eighties, 
and Nigeria, 77, first time having that experience. Well, that, again, these light bulb moments, they let mm-hmm. me know that I could take the work out. London, when was that? Mm-hmm. early 90s, um, London. Brazil, I had, uh, I, I started, I loved Bahia, Brazil so much that a friend of mine had a touring company, uh, and he asked me to put together uh, some trips. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed those for artists and people that wanted to see Africa because that's what Bahia was known as, Africa outside of Africa, the largest population of people of African descent. Mm-hmm. In this hemisphere is in Bahia, Brazil. Mm-hmm. So I began to do trips um, through uh, his company, and I think I did about seven seven trips. And during that ten year period, I took three hundred and two people. Yeah. So it was really a great experience for me. It's always good to turn other people on. Since then, people have gone back and done great work there, so mm-hmm. I'm grateful for that. Then in the mid-90s, I did the first trip to Cuba. That was a conference there that dealt with the art and the religion of Cuba, so I just felt like I needed to be there. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I did my first show in 2012, and then the last time I was there, 2014, at Casa de Africa. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So this whole, I guess, effort or movement to link African people from throughout the diaspora, it has a really strong cultural component that is continuing. It's not like, you know, people really let that go. It's still there when, when you travel now. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, well, most recently I was in Cartagena, Colombia as well. Palenque, which is a, like a maroon enclave. Mm. And um, just to walk in and see the people there had been there on that land for 400 years and how they retained the culture. So they weren't as, so you get a chance to see assimilated as we were here. These people are living very close to where their ancestors lived, Mm. you know, um, in Palenque. So... Um, what do you mean, like more of a rural or more rural, more earthy, more cultural? They had, I mean, you would think you were in Africa for mm. for for the most part, but you okay. you know, so it was uh, really another eye opening experience. And then the last time out, I was in Ethiopia. I went to a conference over there, and it was like really going back to the source and having that experience. Us outside, seeing us outside of the states, I think that's very relevant yeah. to our growth and development. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You were asking about D.C. connection, yeah. and what I didn't get to say is how a university in the mid-'70s, again, all of our stars were over here, such as Jeff Donaldson, the art department. Some people might remember the work of Jeff Donaldson. He mm-hmm was uh, the founder of um, Africobra. Africobra, <laughs> ah, Afro very strong and relevant. Uh, then there was the Ethiopian brother, Skunda, that did magnificent work. Professor Alfred Smith, Adewale Sorrells was at Howard. So, again, even though 
I was from Merlin Institute, but I felt my spirit was over here at mm-hmm. the art department at Howard. In terms of the soul and the spirit, mm-hmm. this was Howard University. You had to go to Howard for that. You look around here and see this work. This is all Al Smith uh, work in here. Yeah. This is the work of Alfred Smith. Okay. Those thrones to the ancestors, that's the work of Alfred Smith. Mm-hmm. Howard University, most people think that we got them from Africa somewhere. And that's right, brother, right here at D.C. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, this collection you have is amazing. I'm sure you know that, though. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, so you actually just mentioned some of the other key individual artists, mm-hmm. you know, especially in, that, in the scene here in D.C. at that time. How about other cultural institutions in D.C. Uh, you know, since I've been here, I've been here about 20 years. I know some of them, like uh, Conqueron Dance. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure when they exactly started, but where were some, Oh, some then I have other. to give all praises due to Melvin Deal and the African Heritage Drummers and Dancers. I first saw them back in the late 60s mm-hmm. when I, I ran into Melvin Deal. And one of my friends was a dancer... I used to catch the bus with her to come over and see what the African drummers were doing and dancers. You had Baba Ngoma, who fathered drum. One of the baddest drummers on this side of the country was around at that time. Mm-hmm. You had institutions, independent schools. I mean, the first time I've heard of independent schools was when I came to D.C. Right. And, of course, all praises due to the work of Ujama. And they've been, they, I think they're going on 50 years. Right. So they, they may have an anniversary concurrent with. Exactly. Exactly. Because Baba um, Zulu came out of SNCC. And he went on to develop Ujama School after he finished with that. Mm-hmm. And then after that was Watoto School started. So it was a a wonderful energy. I, of course, just knowing that they existed. My daughter was a little too old at that time to put her, I wish I did, have a school like that in Baltimore. But Mm -hmm. she went to public schools in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. In terms of an independent school, that was really forward thinking. Not many of those institutions still are, are around today. And they started back when we had a sense of we can do it ourselves, we can educate ourselves. Now, speaking of organizations, I know that you have developed a organization, um, Golden Age of Black Art, and that's actually when we first met. I was still working at The Post, and I, I interviewed you and Achille Ron Anderson about yeah. Golden Age of Black Art. Yes. And so how do you fit GABA? into this lineage. Okay. Well, we came out of National Conference of Artists, which is the oldest black artist organization in the country. Mm -hmm. I think they are about 50 years old as well. Okay. But members of uh, the National Conference of Artists were more like art educators. Mm -hmm. And we came in, a group of us came in as art entrepreneurs. So we wanted to blend and see how they were doing things and so the door was opened um i was uh the president of the dc chapter of nca for about five years and we decided that our thinking was a little bit more like people who wanted to do art for a living more than art from a 
educational. educational perspective. So that's when God became along. And what year is that about? Is it ninety? That was the early nineties. Okay. Um, we started that, and um, we said nineteen ninety to the first. We said nineteen ninety to the year two thousand, and then we felt like, well, we still here. We need to keep going on. So now it's twenty twenty, mm-hmm. and it may go on. We hope the next generation or so will pick up on it and take it further. During the same time, there's been kind of a more integration in the larger society. Black artists have been, I guess, like kind of drawn into the mainstream of the art world, mm. uh, the art world in quotation marks, right? I mean, how do you react to people who talk about us living in a post-racial society or post-black? Post-black. Right. Oh. And so, which would seem to be the end, the opposite of what, you know, you've been about and what the Black Power Movement was about. Absolutely. And I think that's a farce. Mm-hmm. I think that's the illusion of inclusion. Mm-hmm. Again, you, when you're talking about the art world, per se, it's very few of us get to go through that door to be have our work accepted. It's a certain kind of art that you do that they will never, unless it's something that they can draw from for themselves. Um, there's artists that does... Uh, the work particularly speaks to us and our culture, and we don't have an open door in terms of being welcomed to their galleries and museums. So I think that that post-black concept was used as a, a vehicle for trying to gain entry to the European art market. Mm-hmm. You know, denounce you know, your history and culture mm-hmm. and saying we, we've done that, you know, as if this was a phase. It's not a phase, you know. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. absolutely a way of life, and that's what we try to convey. That's why, in terms of my work as a designer, cultural artist, I call myself a cultural arts activist, mm-hmm. and that's to make things happen where there was nothing happening before or keep it going, keep that energy alive because if we don't participate, it's going to die. So as long as we have somebody to activate the concept or a group of people activating that concept, the ideas will live on. And that's what I aspire to do. I realize that some of the pieces that I do would be what some people call costumish, Mm-hmm. But I just want us to see ourselves as queens and kings mm-hmm. or see ourselves in a way of life that has nothing to do with the Western runway style right. of art. So it's never been about this is for you to purchase. Like this is for you to check out and see and be inspired. And certainly I know that's why I kept doing the fashion shows and inviting sisters from the community and people. I never had any big you know, models per se. Mm -hmm. But there were those of us in our community so we could see our beauty and see us in jean t-shirt culture that we live in, see ourselves look another way. And that's what I felt in Cuba when I went. Mm -hmm. I looked for the darker sister in Havana. And luckily, a friend of mine I think they're more in Santiago to Cuba. I know they are, but I I, I happened to land in Havana. Yeah. But again, those sisters are there. 
that never get the experience of having seen themselves in Afrocentric attire, per se, done in a contemporary way. That's why I really enjoyed doing those shows. And I know I touched hearts and spirits with that when I did those shows. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, going to Senegal or Nigeria, they think that when we come, we bring in the Western concept in terms of when I say with us. And when you come with an Afrocentric concept, that makes them stop and take note, you know, that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a lot came from um, the African culture still is with the people, you know? Yeah. You know, I was just thinking, have you met the sister at Nubian Human? I did. I have met her, yeah. Yeah. I met her when they did the Black Love Experience this year, and Mm. I'm thinking about what she's doing I see that as being kind of like it carrying on that tradition in a way. Absolutely. You know? I just um, saw something, I think it was a website, mm-hmm. which I would, I would implore everybody to check her website out. They're down in Anacostia at yes. the... Anacostia Art Center, right? Uh, right, Art, Art Center. Center. Yeah. So that's the next generation, absolutely. That's, mm-hmm. Those are the next ones, the ones we'll carry on. And so it's beautiful when we see keeping the traditions and the culture and informing us in a contemporary way. So when you look at the work, you're not thinking that you're looking something yesterday. You're looking forward to today and tomorrow as well with the work. The only thing that I think I may have missed is I wanted to see if you wanted to talk about just the process. like Maybe like when you knew you were an artist and if you kind of can get lost in kind of creativity. Oh, absolutely. When I knew I was an artist, when people started calling me an artist, and (laughs) I didn't realize it. And again, that was from the, it's like Earth, Wind, and Fire said, if there ain't no beauty, make some beauty. Have mercy, listen to me. (laughs) (laughs) So that always stuck in my mind um, to try to beautify your space where you are, to try to share that concept with others so we will live a more thorough cultural experience. We have what we need, so we don't have to look outside of ourselves for beauty or culture. We have it. And that's when I felt like I was on a mission with the art. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just art for art's sake, which I can't stand that concept, (laughs) art to just do a piece of art. Mm -hmm. I want to make a statement. I want to make a strong statement because you will have the opportunity to tap some other being, giving them a perspective that perhaps they wouldn't have seen before if they had not had the experience of seeing you. The movement of the culture and the cultural perspective into the work. Mm -hmm. So it moved it forward. If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and you just heard my interview with fiber artist and cultural activist Janua Moja, who has exhibited her wearable art throughout the African diaspora. She's actually one of the artists being honored tonight at the Nia Kwanzaa celebration at the Thurgood Marshall Center in Northwest D.C. 
This is the fifth and final part of our series, Black Power, 50 Years in D.C., 1966 to 2016. All five show segments will be available, are available on our website, on thegroundshow.org. When we come back, unpacking 2016 with professor, author, and activist Gerald Horn. Stay with us. The soundtrack for us in, in Baltimore back then, Doug yeah. and Gene Kahn. Absolutely. Yeah, that was a good time. Were they from there? No, this no, area? no, but yeah. just, just hearing the music. I mean, I was playing it last night. I was like, yeah. I mean, just, it just takes you there. Um, right, right. To that time. Revelations, yeah. yes. you know. This is On the Ground, on the org. Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. 
I'm Esther Rivera. I'm here on our last show of 2016, and here to help us unpack this year is author and activist Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston, and a frequent geopolitical analyst across the Pacifica Network. And while we're getting him, I have to say that when it comes to this year, I have three major I guess you could call them obsessions. And the first is the unmasking and breakdown of neoliberalism. And second would be the alarming contours of the Trump administration as they emerge day by day and the continuing normalization of hate and hateful violence. And, you know, as I was writing that down, I had two more thoughts that came to me. And and that's really the breakdown of any remaining illusion that that corporate news organizations, particularly on TV, are about real journalism. And I guess that's related to the, I guess, the ignoring of truth or the the war on truth. You know, we have a president-elect that denies science, climate change. We have him appointing or nominating Jeff Sessions, a white supremacist, to be the head of the Department of Justice. So these are some of the things that I think are some of our stories of the week, but hopefully we can unpack some of those things. Good morning, Gerald. Are you there? Yes. Okay. So I don't know if you heard some of my issues, but why don't you take your pick in terms of where you would like to start in terms of your stories of the year? Well, I guess I agree with the mainstream insofar as they say the two main stories of 2016 are Brexit, the British exit from the European Union, which is in motion, voted on by the British electorate in June 2016 by a ratio of 52 to 48, and the election of Donald J. Trump in November 2016. Uh, Both are expressions, I believe, of a certain kind of right-wing populism, Uh, That is to say that I would argue, and this is something the press has mostly mentioned, that in some ways these two votes are the concluding chapters of the Cold War. That is to say the Cold War not only involved this titanic conflict between Moscow and Washington, uh, on the ground, particularly in the United States and to a degree in Britain, it involved routing the presumed left-wing supporters of Moscow, which included left-wing trade unions, which are still in a weakened condition, and as a result, this has had a devastating ideological impact, particularly on Euro-American workers, and to a degree on so-called white British workers, and that left them with a means of revolt, of engaging in this right-wing populist maneuver, which took on an anti-immigrant cast, in particular, on both sides of the Atlantic. So, without unions without left organizations to advocate for them you believe that that this is kind of the final chapter in what the cold war brought brought to both sides of the atlantic not only that but in some ways uh, president obama is trying to extend the worst excesses of the cold war with his recent decision to oust dozens of Russian diplomats from Washington on the premise that they, that is to say Russia, was involved in hacking the Democratic Party's electronic communications, and supposedly that was designed to elect Donald J. Trump. Now, 
What's curious about this is, number one, if you go through the evidence, particularly as represented in the New York Times as recently as this morning, it's hard to figure out what the evidence actually is of this hacking. In fact, the New York Times admitted this morning that there was no clear evidence that Russian intelligence was actually involved in this hacking. You had this companion article in the New York Times that went into great detail about all of the hackers in Russia, but you got a lot of hackers in the United States of America. But that doesn't mean that every hack perpetrated by a hacker in the United States of America is directed by Barack Hussein Obama. And so in many ways, what Obama is doing is capitulating to the worst excesses of the anti-Moscow Cold War, which we thought had died when the Soviet Union collapsed on December 25, 1991. But like a beard that continues to grow in the face of a corpse, it seems as if the anti-Moscow Cold War is still with us and still bedeviling us. So part of this... I don't know, this expulsion, these sanctions announced by by uh, President Obama, it seems to feed into this overall uh, trend this year of what I call the, the war on truth. Uh, we're supposed to believe that certain ideas are true, that but without any evidence, uh, we have President-elect Trump coming in denying climate change, d- denying science, and I, I've said this before, we connected with you that many ideas are being put out by his his incoming administration based on lies, based on untruth. And what do you what do you think about that in terms of something that has kind of gone wild this year? Well, it's, it's a very curious development. I mean, first of all, there is the controversy about fake news, which definitely exists. But the question I ask about fake news, that is to say, the news that one reads on websites, on Facebook, etc., that is manufactured and designed to mislead news, in quotes, that led a man from North Carolina to recently come to a pizzeria in Washington with a rifle because of a fake news story that suggested that Hillary Rodham Clinton was involved in some sort of pedophile ring based out of this pizzeria. The question I ask about fake news is, why does it disproportionately tend to mislead and afflict many in the white American middle class and working class? I mean, for example, fake news was said to be a factor in electing Donald J. Trump president because a lot of the fake news sites were designed to defame Hillary Rodham Clinton. But we in black America, we're subject to the same fake news sites, and that did not cause us to vote for Donald J. Trump to the same degree as it caused some of our white counterparts to vote for Donald J. Trump. So we should be asking a question about what's up with these white folks (laughs) that they can be so easily misled. But of course, that's the question that's off the table. And one is basically accused of being engaged in identity politics if one even poses that question. Well, we are running out of time for this hour and that will do it for us on On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. A special thanks to the contributors to the show this year, Chantel James, Michelle Roberts, Lydia Curtis, Michael Byfield, Floyd DJ Wahid Aaron. And thanks to our engineer throughout the year, Michael Nacella and Luke Stewart Engineering Today. And thank you for supporting your station for Jazz and Justice this year. On the Ground is a labor of love, love for the people. We're always working to improve our show. 
which is distributed across the Pacifica network and has been aired by several Pacifica affiliates this year. We have improved our show website, onthegroundshow.org, where you know you can listen to all of our shows. This year we were also awarded a project grant from the D.C. Commission on the Arts and Humanities for our Black Power series and a second grant from the Diverse City Fund. You can reach the show at onthegroundshow.org where you can connect with us, join with us, where you know you can always listen to all of our shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show. I'm Esther Averm. Raise your voice out there. Peace. (laughs) 